America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. No matter how difficult it seems at the time, it's easier to do the right thing than spend a lifetime regretting that you didn't. Robert O'Malley, Medal of Honor recipient. Episode 22, Jim's American Story, a dedication to preserving the legacies of our Medal of Honor heroes. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My name is Tina McCafferty. My guest is Jim Fassone. Jim, welcome. I appreciate you being here. Well, thanks, Tina. We're uh, looking forward to our conversation. I am too. Jim is going to share with us a few amazing stories about some heroes we like to call Medal of Honor recipients. How he was able to whittle it down to a few stories, I have no idea because every single one that I read, they're all incredible. So kudos to you. Uh, it, it, you're absolutely right. There are over 3,500 now uh, Medal of Honor recipients and all of them have a story to tell. All of them have a lesson uh, that we can learn from it. Before you share those, can you share with us a little of your American story and you can go back as far or as recent as you want and let us know why your interest in these heroes. How did that come about? Certainly. So uh, I think I'm a pretty typical American story from the Midwest. My grandparents uh, were immigrants, uh, Ireland, uh, France, Italy. Uh, they came over to the United States uh, through Ellis Island and other legal means and uh, found themselves working a hard scrabble life. Uh, uh, the Fossons ended up in northern Michigan, uh, Upper Peninsula, very cold, uh, in the copper mines. And the copper mines, uh, anybody of any, you didn't have to have education, you just had to have a strong back, uh, could work in the copper mines. And, and uh, a lot of the Fossones are uh, dead up in Calumet, Michigan. Uh, we have a really nice burial plot up there, a nice mausoleum. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, they came down to the uh, Metro Detroit air, area to work uh, because that was uh, a much better life. And uh, it ties back to my uh, grandfather, uh, my father, uh, my grandfather was in World War I. My dad was in World War II. I'm at the end of the Vietnam era. And uh, so we had a certain view about uh, military service and uh, what this country allowed uh, us to do over time. As I said, we, they, they showed up with no education and a strong back. And a couple of generations later, everyone, everybody in, in my family has got a graduate degree and has really lived the American dream. My wife's family similar. Uh, her dad was in the army in World War II and she served. And, and this is a big part of the story is my wife's a retired Brigadier General. Wow. Uh, a nurse by training. She um, did 34 years in the U.S. Air Force and the Michigan Air National Guard. Uh, she was at the Pentagon on 9-11. 
Uh, she's really traveled all over the world with the military. And so we've known a lot of military families and, and 18 year olds to, you know, uh, retirees at 60, 65. So we, we have this big expanse of folks. And all of that led to, uh, as a, I'm a lawyer uh, by training, it led to us starting a veterans disability practice called Legal Help for Veterans. We help veterans nationwide get their disability from the VA. LegalHelpForVeterans.com uh, is how folks generally find us. And that led us to being involved in, and my wife's uh, involvement, my involvement in veteran matters, led us to be involved with a lot of different veteran activities over time. And uh, another one of those was veteransradio.net. Veterans Radio has been on the air for about uh, 15, 17 years, I guess now. Uh, as you know, Tina, because you and I talked about this, and the reason I said, yeah, I'll come on and help, is I do the podcast. Uh, I'm the podcast host for Veterans Radio. And we've been doing that for about five years. Uh, every week we post another uh, interesting podcast interview with some veteran about his story. And over those years, we talked to Medal of Honor recipients and those who were uh, telling the stories of Medal of Honor recipients. And that sort of led us to a relationship with a website we're talking about today is homeofheroes.com. And homeofheroes.com is dedicated to Medal of Honor recipients and other awards of valor, but it's primarily Medal of Honor. There's Silver Star and some other things, Distinguished Service Crosses, and a lot of military history about those kind of awards. But uh, it was just sort of this whole progression of uh, starting with just helping one guy in his veteran's disability and talking to one guy about a Medal of Honor, and if you stay at it long enough, you uh, end up with a uh, sort of big portfolio of people you know and ways in which you can help. And somebody said, geez, I think if you, you know, get involved with uh, legal help for veterans, uh, would get involved with Veterans Radio. And then from Veterans Radio, if you get involved with Home of Heroes, and you got, you got to find a place to say, stop, I can't take on anymore. But that's how we got to the focus of Medal of Honor recipients and uh, those men, primarily uh, men, who have received the nation's highest award for valor. Before we start those stories, why is it so important to remember these heroes? Well, I think it's more important today than ever as the number of people involved in the military gets smaller and smaller. So, so in World War II, everybody, every family had members in the military and suffered that military service. You know, uh, some men got killed in battle, some got uh, damaged in battle, and some came home fine, but every family was touched by military service. We get to Vietnam, you know, Korea was, was sort of a carryover from World War II. A lot of the World War, younger World War II uh, vets got pulled back into Korea, but we get to Vietnam and, and again, because of the draft, a lot of families, not everybody, but a lot of families got touched by military service. And then we kind of go dormant, right? We, we, we have a draft, but we haven't drafted anybody since 1972 or something. Uh, we, have a, we have a registration process through selective service. And we go to this all volunteer force. Well, now less than 1% of the population is involved in protecting the country through military service. 
So these kinds of stories help the rest of us understand a little bit about what it's like to be in service and to understand the, the costs uh, that others have paid for us to allow us to be the kind of country that we are. And, and it's kind of cheesy to say it, but freedom isn't free, right? This is a, the best example of the price that has to be paid for freedom will be some of these stories that we tell from uh, Medal of Honor recipients. But if, you know, I, over the years, I've written a lot of speeches for a certain general that she delivers. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and what, what we often, you know, one, one paragraph or phrase we often use in this is about, you know, if you appreciate going to the church or temple or mosque of your choice, thank a veteran. If you appreciate the ability to vote or not vote, thank a veteran. If you appreciate the opportunity to have opportunities in life, in your career, in your job, in your family, thank a veteran. So there's a whole list of things which we in this country have because those veterans raised their right hand, swore allegiance to the United States Constitution and against uh, enemies, foreign and domestic. And as a result, we get to do those things like freedom of assembly uh, that others, other countries simply don't. Is the disconnect today between the general public and the service members, is it bigger than it's ever been under the understanding or the lack of understanding? I, I believe it is. Um, not only do you have fewer people involved because of this 1% uh, that actually volunteer, but in a social media world, in a, in a Hollywood world, veterans are portrayed a certain way. And, and it really concerns me that the only veteran some image of a veteran somebody might have, maybe that damaged veteran with uh, PTS, uh, or that guy who uh, shoots up a place and then we say, oh, well, he was a veteran and he, it must be related to that, that he's crazy. And we saw a little bit of that out of the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Was it a riot or rebellion or insurrection and trying to blame veterans for being disproportionately involved in the group uh, groups that were there. So. I'm very concerned that we are, we have a bigger uh, chasm than we've ever had between the general population and, and those who've served. Well, let's try and bridge that, shall we? We, we shall. And I, let me start with, because I think people don't understand maybe what the Medal of Honor is about. That's it, a good it, place. Is, it is the highest uh, award of valor in action against the enemy forces. Uh, that can be bestowed on an individual here in the United States. The deed performed must be more than just doing your job. It's, it's, a, it, it's undertaking activity where, where your own personal bravery or self-sacrifice is so conspicuous and so clearly distinguishes that individual above his comrades and involves risk of life. So many of these stories are going to sound like, oh my God, this is Horrendous. Well, that, that is what the Medal of Honor is about. It's about this activity that folks uh, undertake that's a, way above and beyond what anybody might uh, expect them to do. And war is and horrendous, it, right? War, war is horrendous. War, war is horrendous. And, and um, nobody wants peace more than a war keeper. Absolutely. And, and really, they are peacekeepers. They're not, they're not warmongers. But I'd also point, 
point out at the beginning for everybody that the Medal of Honor has been given out to people in every state. Whatever state of the union you're at, there's somebody in your state who's received the Medal of Honor and you ought to uh, look them up, get some history going on them, honor them, uh, acknowledge them, and you'd, you'd be surprised uh, who's all in your state. And, and at homeofheroes.com, we've got a big index because, as I said, it's 3,500 people that you can search in various ways. It's also all ethnicities. It is Caucasians, African Americans, Hispanics, uh, Japanese Americans. So, so this isn't one person's, one ethnic group's story of protecting the country. Uh, so, some of the Native Americans who have fought valiantly, uh, they were fighting before they were um, actually citizens of the United States. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting um, spread across uh, all the types of men. Uh, there's only one woman. And, and again, with women not being in combat until more recently, it'll be a while before any of those unfortunately, have to um, undertake those kinds of heroic activities that might award them the, or, or allow them to be a recipient of the Medal of Honor. It's also the president who, in the modern era, who grants it. Um, while it's granted in the name of Congress, it's not Congress that does it. Although often, because of the way the rules are, if it's not granted, I think it's within the first five years of the act, then it takes a congressional uh, act to change that limitation period. And many men don't, don't get their award until 50 years later. The Vietnam guys who got it under Clinton and Obama and, and Trump uh, all had to have that congressional act that moved the date so that they could uh, be honored. And it also requires everybody from your chain of command up to write and sign off in favor of it. So it's a, it's a very, in the modern era, and I'm drawing a line here, World War II uh, to today, it's a very uh, rigorous process. And, you know, it can get derailed anywhere, anywhere up the chain uh, to the Secretary of the Army, Secretary of the Navy, whoever it might be, and Secretary of Defense up to the present. So it's, it's the sort of award no one should ever seek um, and, and nobody really does. Um, they are often surprised, humbled to receive it. Unfortunately, many of them are given out uh, after someone has died. Um, and it's an award that the family gets that, you know, re reaffirms the commitment that their son or uh, the family made to, to help the country. And it's also across all branches. Um, the Army's got the most of them because we've got the most in the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, Air Force, uh, the Coast Guard even has somebody who, who has received the Medal of Honor. And every global, every conflict, uh, I've mentioned uh, World War I and II, every conflict has folks who have received the Medal of Honor. And I'm drawing this line on the modern Medal of Honor because the Civil War had 1,500 given out. Oh, wow. They, yeah, and they weren't given out in the same uh, rigorous manner that I just spoke about. So there are some real questionable ones in the in the Civil War era. At various times, uh, Congress or the State Departments actually looked at those and sort of said, "We should pull some of these back," but a little hard to do that once once given out. 
Um, but let me let me move on to some stories because that's what we're here to talk about, right, Tina? Yes, I'm I'm excited to hear them. So I want to I'm going to start with World War One, and I'm going to start with a gentleman by the name of Elvin York, Y-O-R-K. Elvin was from Tennessee. He was a backwoods hick and a small little isolated uh, village in, in Tennessee. Never, never had left the county. Family had never left the county. Uh, they got to the county and never left. Elvin was a hellraiser in, in his teens um, after his dad died. Very hard, you know, everybody in that county had a hard life, so nothing unusual really about Elvin's dad. But he then found religion. And he's uh, 1920s uh, and finds a fundamentalist Christian religion uh, in his uh, little town and becomes an elder and, uh, you know, sings in the choir and just turns his whole uh, view on life around, no longer drinking and hell-raising, but uh, he, he's now a Bible thumper, those up north would think of him. He gets drafted into to World War I. He don't want to go fight anybody. He, he, he goes through a whole period of reflection about the uh, thou shall not kill. That's a commandment. I can't break it. I can't go. His pastor writes to the president and says, you know, Elvin's a wonderful Christian man and essentially a conscientious objector. They don't use that language at that time, but that's what they, they say he is. He goes, talks uh, to various people and ultimately gets uh, sworn in and drafted, but is still talking to his commanding officer about, I can't, I can't kill somebody, thou shalt not kill. Now, Elvin's coming out of Tennessee. Elvin York is a cracks marksman. He can shoot better than anybody in the, in the whole unit. He has these backwood skills from hunting and fishing and trapping that sort of make him a pretty, you know, he'd be a pretty darn good army soldier, foot soldier. In, in any event, he works his way through this challenge of conscience about, can I take up arms against another man and concludes through this um, sort of uh, spiritual analysis that he can fight a just war and fighting the Germans is, is just. And he goes, and gets sent off to France in October of uh, 1918. He finds himself in the middle of one of the worst battles in the Argonne Forest, sort of northeast France, going into Belgium. Uh, the Germans really had the high ground. And on this particular day, York's uh, battalions told to take a particular hill. And they attempt to do that and the platoon is uh, cut in half. Half the guys get shot up. They're told to keep going. Um, York becomes, uh, he's a private at the time, he becomes the most senior guy and is leading this, uh, another six guys, York's platoon, into trying to take this hill. And he's 19? And he's 19. <laughs> and uh, he's, maybe he's 20, 21, something like Still that. Still babe, though. Oh, a kid. You know, again, never been out of the hills of Tennessee. And, and so he finds himself in this leadership position. Go, he decides, you know, they've been trying to go straight up this hill and everybody's getting killed. He says, well, we're going to come around the side and try to go up. They go around the side of the hill and, un, you know, there's no, remember, there's no satellite. There's no, 
you know, a Google map. There's nothing to help you know what you're getting into when you go around the hill. But he runs into the German camp where the guys have been, who've been shooting at him up on the hill, and then the replacements would come down, go to the camp, get some food, sleep in some warm tents. Other guys would go up top and shoot at him. He comes around the hill, and, and they take the whole uh, unit of German soldiers they've been battling with in one swoop. Wow. The Germans must are reported to say, we thought there must have been a hundred Americans coming around, not just six guys. Six? Six guys. They end up capturing, they have 132 Germans who surrender to them. How is that even possible? <laughs> exactly. Goodness. So in the middle of that, and they're having them drop their rifles and line up, the guys on the top of the hill realize what's going on down there, and they turn their guns around and start shooting down towards the Americans, but they also are shooting at their own uh, German soldiers, so they're a little circumspect in this, and uh, everybody hits the deck except the Americans because they don't understand German when, when the uh, guys say hit the deck, and there's a, a, another firefight trying to take out the guys on the hill. Uh, York and, and the other members use up all their ammunition. And in the end, a German um, lieutenant tells the guys on the hill shooting down to stop, halt. Again, thinking there must be hundreds of Americans swamping us any moment now. And Elvin York and his patrol ends up capturing all these men. They march them back uh, to the American side and the um, Brigadier General, the brigade commander, says to York, I hear you captured the whole German army. <laughs> and York says, no, sir, I, I got only 132. Oh, my gosh. So this becomes uh, one of the biggest routes of Germans in the Argonne Forest, has a, a big off, a, a play that allows the, the other American troops to go through by that hill and get into the in behind enemy lines safely. But, but it's, it's an interesting, while what happened in getting there is interesting, York becomes the most feted veteran of World War I. His efforts become used as uh, PR, good PR back in the United States, for what a single American can do. And books are written, and uh, there's a famous movie uh, in 1941 called Sergeant York, uh, Hollywood puts on. Importantly, so, so this is 1918 when he does his deed. 1941, they do the movie. 1941 is just in front of World War II. Mm -hmm. and, and to gin up patriotic support, they do this biopic of Sergeant Elvin York and his uh, heroics and what one single soldier, American soldier can do as part of the PR campaign for going into and having a patriotic call for World War II. What I wanna talk about though for a moment is the importance of what happened to Elvin York after this. Because one of the things you see when you read the stories of those Medal of Honor recipients who survived is that there's a there can be a heavy burden yeah. to be a Medal of Honor recipient. 
And there's a lesson to be learned from that, right? So, so every time you may get an award, there's a burden that comes with that award. And that's true in life. You know, the more you have, the more burden you have to use it properly. And Elvin York really struggled with, he came back to Tennessee, he struggled with all the offers for publicity that he received, the business deals he was offered, the local rotary bought him a farm, gave him a, the farm. He didn't understand that he had to make the mortgage payment and the taxes. They just did the initial down payment. He gets himself in bankruptcy. He has a really difficult time through the rest of his life because he wasn't prepared is probably not the right word. He just, he just didn't have the experiences to be pushed out in front. And that one day, that one heroic act, this huge outcome because of it results in him receiving the, the Medal of Honor and then having to deal with the consequences for the, for the rest of his life. Did the Medal of Honor make his life more difficult, do you believe, if maybe he would have done his time in the war and come home? Yeah, I think a lot of people look at these men and say, for some of them, life would have been better if I never received it. And not everybody, but there are some. And one of the things we try to do on Home of Heroes is uh, tell the unvarnished truth. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to hold these guys up as superhumans and everything was great afterwards. That's really not true. And that's not the American story. We all know we have good years and bad years and challenges and wins and losses. And that's certainly Elvin York. And he may have been one of those ones better off without it. Hmm. I, I want to go to World War II and talk about somebody who, who definitely, Elvin York was a great guy, great, simple American. I want to talk about somebody who wasn't so great. <laughs> so, so one of the uh, Maynard Snuffy Smith. Maynard Snuffy Smith. S-N-U-F-F-Y. Snuffy Smith uh, received the Medal of Honor for his heroics in World War II. Snuffy was one of those guys that most people, once they got to know him, didn't like him. <laughs> and, and this was true through his whole life. So he enlisted in the uh, U.S. Army Air Force at the time. Air Force wasn't separated. And uh, he did that because he thought he'd get an easier job. Mm. And then he said, well, you know what? I'll be an aerial gunner uh, because you'll make me a non-commissioned officer. And it's a quick way for a private uh, to uh, get promoted and earn more pay. Snuffy was that kind of guy. Now, uh, part of this is because he came from a family. Uh, his dad was a judge in a rural Michigan county. And uh, I think he was always a little privileged in his own mind and always thought he was better than the, the other guys. So Snuffy goes in, completes aerial gunnery school. He goes over to England and then makes his uh, way over to a um, bombardment squadron. On his very first mission on May 1st, 1943, Staff Sergeant Smith, who's assigned to the uh, ball gun turret, uh, the plane comes under a heavy attack and uh, all kinds of holes uh, punch through the thin skin of the plane. And he finds himself having to save six of his wounded comrades. He pulls them out of the back part of the plane started caught fire. He has to repeatedly go into the fire and pull these guys up 
as the pilot is attempting to put out the flames, and they do that by maneuvers and trying to get the heck back to base. But Snuffy goes in and pulls these guys out of the fire while the, the plane is diving trying to put out uh, the fire. Remember, I said this was his very first mission. Snuffy wasn't a popular guy. He didn't have deep friends on this air crew. But he goes in and um, saves these guys in a, in a really a magnificent way. And, and he's an enlisted guy, just like Elvin Smith was. These aren't officers. These aren't uh, uh, Elvin York ones. These aren't um, highly educated men who rattled necessarily a Here, Here's an enlisted guy. Smith had by that point already gained a reputation as a stubborn and obnoxious airman who did not get along well with the other airmen. And this was his first, first assignment, thus the name Snuffy, because it was related to a popular uh, comic strip uh, character of the time and not, not a flattering name. So, so back, in the, back in the day, these Medal of Honors recipients would receive the award pretty, pretty promptly, might, maybe even on the battlefield. You know, uh, really? As compared to today, it's 50 years later, and they're awarding it to people from Vietnam. Some, everybody writes him up for his heroics. It goes up the chain. They're going to give him the Medal of Honor. Um, he's in England, I believe. And a general comes on by who's going to pin the award on him. Again, this is a morale booster for the troops. General shows up and says, hey, I'm here to give us, uh, Maynard Smith his Medal of Honor. You know, where is he? And the base commander's like, you know, where is he? He's not here. He was on KP duty. They, they had sent, he was such a pain in the butt that he had been uh, done something he shouldn't have and they assigned him to peel potatoes. He's in peeling potatoes doing kitchen patrol or KP duty and they have to call him out and you know clean up a little bit, you're gonna get the Medal of Honor. So you don't have to be, you don't have to be the best guy in the world to act heroically. You might not even think you're capable of it. I don't think uh, Snuffy Smith ever would have said, I'm the kind of guy who's courageous and I'm going to do this. He was looking for every edge to get out of what he was doing and every edge to get a little more. And, and yet he finds himself, when put in that position, human nature takes over and he saves these six guys in, in a way that uh, one maybe couldn't have predicted. So I always, I always like Snuffy because, his, as I say, it shows you don't have to be a great uh, moral character to, uh, to receive the Medal of Honor, and uh, many of us fall into that category. I so. wonder, was he more well-liked afterwards or not? He was really? not. He was not. <laughs> it didn't he, change he, he, he went through his entire life all the way to his death with everybody thinking, God, he's this obnoxious SOP. <laughs> Just the way he was. Oh, um, funny. Speaking of moral character, I want to talk about another World War II group that maybe some people have heard about, but, but I don't think they know the story. And all of these stories on homeofheroes.com. You can find them there. You can find them. Use your favorite search uh, engine, and you can find more stories and explanation on all these. But I want to talk about the four chaplains. Have you ever heard of the four chaplains? I have not. Well, I'm glad I'm telling this story then. So in World War II, um, the U.S. military has always had chaplains, all the way back to the American Revolution. Um, I've had the honor of interviewing for VeteransRadio.net a number of chaplains uh, who have served. It's, it's, it's a very honorable career path for 
ministers and reverends and priests and, and uh, others. So in 1942, four men attended the chaplain school, who at that, at that time, the chaplain school was at Harvard University. Can you imagine Harvard University today no. uh, conducting the, the chaplain school for the military? No. No, no. So it, it tells you that uh, this was a different time in 1942 when we were at war with Germany. These four men uh, it ranged in age from about uh, 42 to uh, late 20s. One, uh, one was a, let's see if I can get these all right here. Uh, one was a Methodist reverend. One was a Dutch reformed reverend. One was a Catholic priest. And one was a rabbi. These four uh, men uh, are in the chaplain corps. They go through schooling together. Obviously all different faiths, all different slices of faith. And they get put on a, a troop transport um, called the Dorchester. It's taking troops from the United States over to Europe in um, 1943. During that same period, the Germans uh, really control the Atlantic mm. uh, seaways through the use of U-boats. They had the technological superiority over uh, the, the U.S. Navy at that point, and we're sinking all kinds of ships, armed, unarmed, troop transports, just supply ships. February 2nd, uh, 1943, a U-boat hits the Dorchester with two torpedoes. Uh, surviving one would have been amazing. Surviving two is not even a possibility at, at that point of, in time. So as the ship, uh, and, and, and I was on ship in the Scariest thing you ever have is if you if it was going to sink, it it lists over over time. It takes a little while, but once it hits a point, it's over with. It's just gone. So you have a certain window to get the heck off the the ship, and and um, the captain tells everybody to abandon ship. In this instance, the chaplains have been helping the men get up out of the passageways. Once it starts lift listing over you're walking down corridors funny and everything. They've been helping them get up to the railing so that they could jump into the freezing cold Atlantic. And at one point they find, they find themselves at the life jacket uh, lockers that have been opened and they're hand, they've put on their own life jackets and now they're handing out life jackets to the crew that's coming to that side of the ship. Because as it lists, the, the, and I don't remember if it's the starboard or the port that's in the water and everybody's got to get to the other side to be able to jump off then hand out all of the life jackets and realize there's still men left on the ship. Each of them takes off their life jacket, gives it to four more men to get off the ship. This, at this point, the ship is really listed over. They are holding on to the rail and the ship goes down with all four chaplains. There were 920 men on the Dorchester. Only 230 got plucked out of the icy waters of the Atlantic by rescue craft. Four more would have died if these chaplains, practicing their faith, didn't hand their personal life jackets off and uh, pray to their individual God as their last breath. So the four chaplains are 
the other example of the Snuffy Smith, who might not have been the moral character and the nicest of guys, but these four fit that category of being the nicest guys and should be remembered for uh, not only their faith, but, but their service to others by, by giving up uh, their lives, really, to make sure four more guys got in the water safely with life jackets. So, the greatest sacrifice, uh, right? Absolutely. And, and again, that's the kind of story you hear and see as you look through these Medal of Honor uh, recipients. I mentioned that these stories cross all cultural lines, and so I wanted to bring you one out of Korea, Rudy Hernandez. Uh, Rudy was of American of Mexican descent. Nowadays, we drill down deeper and figure out if the family came legal or, or illegally, but that wasn't really the, the question of the day back then. He was one of eight children born to a farm worker. Today, his language would have been a migrant, right? So this is somebody who uh, would have had uh, a very hard life in California as a farm worker, one of eight kids in the family at that point. So in, in 1948, he joins uh, the United States Army. He's 17 years old. At 17, he needs his parents' permission and they give him the permission. And many, many people join the service looking for a better life. Even today, when I interview people for veteransradio.net, I'll ask him, why did you, you know, you have a family history? Why'd you go into the military? And often it's, uh, I needed money for college. I was in a really bad situation uh, in this big city and I needed to get away from the quote unquote friends that I had, re-gang. So a lot of people join the service to better their life. They're gonna get uh, experience, they're gonna learn a lot, they're gonna see the world, they're gonna get benefits when they get done. So it's a better life for a lot of folks. But I do want to make sure I don't leave the impression that the military is made up of, of a bunch of people who some would call losers. That's absolutely not the case. Rudy Hernandez would have been a guy who said, I can achieve more in my life. There's a better opportunity here in America for me, but this is the step I need to do to get there. So he, he joins the army, he goes through uh, uh, basic training and then volunteers to be a, a paratrooper. Go get specialized training, jump out of planes. Now, these guys are all a little crazy. Why would you jump out of a perfectly good plane? I ask them all the time. Yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> but he, he uh, graduates as a paratrooper. He gets sent to Germany. Now, again, think about this. This is a, one of a family of eight uh, kids, a uh, California farm worker. He's not going to Germany otherwise. So he gets this opportunity as, as an army paratrooper he goes off to Germany, and then the Korean War breaks out. Well, nobody was planning on that happening. Again, one of these situations where he gets deployed to, to Korea, his company and battalion gets directed to uh, defend a particular hill in Korea. And on uh, May 31st of 1951, his platoon uh, was the uh, object of a numerically superior enemy counterattack. And many of these stories in Medal of Honors, that's exactly what happens is the, the, the American troops get overwhelmed, superior numbers, superior manpower, superior armament. So they end up having actually a close quarter firefight. They're, they're really right on top of each other. And Hernandez gets wounded in, the, in that attack. He's firing his rifle, but 
he's injured at that point, and then his rifle jams up and doesn't work anymore. He ends up attacking the enemy with his bayonet. Oh, wow. They're that close quarter fighting. And while he's doing that, the, his other members of the, uh, the platoon are regrouping to take a, uh, another charge and take back the hill. As part of this uh, close quarter combat, a grenade explodes and hit his helmet, blew part of his uh, skull, lost a little uh, brain uh, matter, they say. Now he's been, you know, a grenade attack, bayonet attack, shot with bullets, and he's still fighting. At the conclusion of this firefight, the medics come in, and the first medic that goes by him assumes he's dead. You know, he's been all blown up, he's a mess, doesn't stop and help him, he, he moves on. The second medic comes through and realizes that Hernandez is still alive. He moved his fingers, he was in the mud, and he moved his fingers, fortunately the medic saw it. After many months of, uh, of surgery, he's put back together and, and is back to a post-trauma normal life. He, he was given the Medal of Honor uh, by President Truman. In over a five-year period, he regained limited use of his right arm and, and learned how to write with his left hand. Now, again, this is a, a man who uh, gave everything to protect his buddies to fight the fight. He subsequently got married, had three of his own children. He worked for the VA, uh, retired from there actually, um, and, and died in uh, 2013 uh, after battling cancer for the last year of his life. Not his injuries from service, but the big C that gets a lot of folks. But you can wow. see you can see how inspirational he is, and how he charged forward with life, uh, with the cards that he was dealt uh, from that one night. And I think I think there's a lot of uh, inspiration to be gotten from that. Amazing. Many of these have a medical twist to them that I find interesting, and I want to talk about a guy that I'm, I've met and interviewed and, and uh, I'm proud to call a friend, uh, James McClellan, known as Doc. McClellan was born in uh, South Haven, Michigan, and um, had the uh, idyllic American upbringing. He played four sports in high school, Turns out he has this great singing voice. He was a star of the musicals. I mean, this guy had everything going for him. Unlike Hernandez, unlike Snuffy Smith, unlike Alvin York, Jim had everything going for him. He, he had graduated from Olivet uh, College in Michigan uh, to be a teacher. And uh, he had accepted a teaching job and coaching job at the South Haven Public Schools in Michigan. And then Uncle Sam came knocking and said, hey, Jim, you're, you're drafted. And he goes to basic training. He's in the Army. And they pull him out and said, uh, you're going to be a medic. I said, medic? I don't have any medical experience. So, well, you played sports. You must have taped things up. And, and that's why they pulled him out to be a medic. Now, at the time in Vietnam, medics had the highest death rate of uh, any uh, military occupation in Vietnam. They, they knew, hey, if I kill the medic, the other guys are going to die on the field uh, as well, and it's demoralizing as hell. 
so uh, and all the medics were referred to as Doc in, in Vietnam. So so Doc gets to Vietnam. He's there for for a year, Mar March of sixty nine to nineteen seventy. He's out on patrol. Him, uh, he's with a platoon, and there are two medics on this particular reconnaissance patrol, and they get ambushed by a large North Vietnamese force, and they suffer heavy, heavy casualties. So the medics have a lot of work to do. They, they continuously expose themselves to bring the wounded back into the, to the line where they're defending and the rest of the platoon is holding that line. And this firefight goes on for about 24 hours. Now, most firefights are relatively quick, you know, 10, 15 minutes to 24 hours of a firefight tells you what is happening with the other side, how big they are, how well armed they are, how, how provisioned they are. And this platoon naturally runs out of food, water, bullets, bandages over this 24 hour period. But McCullum has to continually expose himself to enemy fire to pull uh, soldiers back to safety. He gets wounded by a, a rocket propelled grenade during one of the rescues and his commanding officer says, Jim, you're hurt. You know, next time the chopper lands, take out the wounded, you go with the wounded. And he says, I can't do it. These guys need me. And both medics stay. Neither of them exit when they could have. Having refused that, he continues to be involved in the firefight, uh, and he's shooting as well. I mean, at this point, it's uh, everybody who can pull a trigger is pulling a trigger. And the other medic gets shot and dies. I told you it's the worst job to have, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're down to one. And you have one medic trying to take care of all of these guys who are wounded and still fighting, because once we get into nightfall, the helicopters can't come. So they've got to make it to the morning. But they do get to a point where they're really out of all ammunition, all food, all water. And they have to get a, they got to get a supply drop to make it through the night. So the commander asked for, hey, somebody's got to go out there, get exposed, and hold a, a beacon, a light beacon up so that the helicopter knows where to drop the supplies. The only guy who says I'll do it is the medic. And they say, well, you know, okay. Now, again, in, in Jim's mind and talking to him about this, he said, well, I knew I was in pretty good physical shape other than I'd been shot and a grenade, but everybody was like that. And I figured I'd just run and zigzag my way out uh, like I was running away from linebackers and they wouldn't be able to shoot me, I hoped, and I prayed to God. But if we, didn't, if we didn't get those supplies, it wouldn't matter anyway. We, we were quickly going to be out of bullets. I was out of bandages. We were out of food and water. So he takes the strobe light and zigzags his way out far enough that there's a spot where they can drop this supplies. And sure enough, they're all shooting at him and, he, and his troops are shooting back to give him cover. And he says, I'm, I'm making a deal with God as I do this. I'm praying, get, let, just get let me through this. I'll be the best son to my father that you've ever seen. I'm going to go back and be the best teacher you've ever seen. Just let me survive this. And why the hell do you think you could deal with God? He said, I didn't know who else to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so they do make the drop, they do get resupplied, and they survive the night. And the next morning, when the airships can come in, the Viet Cong have left. It's totally silent. But it was 24 hours of hell before they got there. He, he continued to fight and treat wounds throughout that night. And so he returns, uh, this is uh, 1971 or 72, he gets back, gets discharged, and goes back to teaching. Now, he picked up his master's in uh, counseling and psychology. He had his own problems, right? Um, everybody who goes through this has. But he went on and taught sociology and psychology at, at the local high school for like 40 years. He, he coached uh, football, baseball, and wrestling for like 30 years. He was inducted into state and national hall of fames for coaching in all of those sports. He was the role model to the countless, you know, how many men, how many boys would have went through, through that high school in 40 years. Right. He became the role model for these men. And he told me, he was, he said, as soon as I got off the plane from Vietnam and I saw my dad, I said, dad, I love you. And I never, he had never said that to his dad. He said, I tried to live the rest of my life till my dad passed in the deal I made with God to survive the night. And he became teacher of the year and all of those things really uh, living up to that goal that he had. And, and it, it's interesting because as we talked with uh, Jim on this, he said, you know, one of the things I had that other, other teachers didn't, I could talk to these men, these boys about the hardest day of their life. They might think losing the girlfriend, dropping the pass, not getting the date I want. Maybe my mom's got cancer. Maybe my family's got divorced. Was going to be the, the toughest day of their life. You know what? It probably wasn't. Right then it was going to be. It was going to feel like that. But they understood that I had gone through my toughest day of the life in Vietnam. And so I could relate to them. They could understand my concerns were genuine. And when I said, told them to hang in there, don't give up, keep pushing forward. They knew it rang with a little bit of truth because that's what I had to do that day when I got back. And I, as I've tried to live for the last 40 years, it took 50 years for Jim to get the Medal of Honor. He got a Distinguished Service Cross, which is the, the award below it. But actually one of, I think it was his lieutenant, kept pushing over those 50 years to upgrade the award to the Medal of Honor. And ultimately that, that was done. And uh, it, it, there isn't a, you know, as I said, I've had a chance to talk to a number of these guys. This is a great guy who lives, has lived and is still living a great life trying to demonstrate what it is to be an American, what it is to move on from a tough situation. Jim would not let self-pity, self-doubt get in the way. He just kept pushing forward. And, and I think that's really something to, to be noted. We're running out of time. I, I, I told you I don't have enough to talk about, and I, I've still got a couple more of these. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abbreviate them real quick. Yes, please do. Because there's one I added in at the end here, uh, Father Emil Kaplan, K-A-P-A-U-N. And the reason I'm bringing him up today um, in this uh, podcast with you, he is a Catholic priest. He was a chaplain. He uh, was captured with, his, his, quote unquote, his boys in Korea. 
Scary. It was a pris prisoner of war. And he died in prison as a prisoner of war in Korea in 1951. Just last week, his remains were identified by the U.S. Army. When the war ended, you know, a lot, there's a lot of MIAs in every war. Um, they were never able to find his remains. And just last week, 70-some years later, they've identified his remains, and, and the Korean government is going to uh, transfer those to the United States government, which will bring them home to the uh, family of Father Emil uh, Kepun. He was well known for his bravery in ministering to soldiers. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He went out to the front line to hear confessions and, and uh, mass and, and counsel men. So he, he did that kind of ministry where he went to them and the stories of his ministry and service while a POW to other men who were starving and sick and uh, using his food rations to try to save them uh, was quite well documented. And, and in fact, he has been identified as, uh, I think, beatified, I think is the right word, by the Catholic Church. Oh, okay. And, and he is on his possibly on his way to sainthood wow. uh, as they confirm miracles. He, he was from the uh, district, I think it was Wichita, Kansas, uh, where he came from, and they're advancing his canonization as a saint. Wow. Uh, there were even Jewish POWs who have testified on his behalf, if you will, of his valor and bravery. So I just wanted to mention that story because it was in the, in the news recently. And that's what happens with these Medal of Honor recipients. You know, it kind of goes, it may go quiet and then it'll come back. The story will come back because they're amazing stories. And although they're not always pushed to the front of the news cycle, they often find them, their way back to the front of the news cycle. There, there are so many of these. Can I tell one more quick one? Of course. Yes. I'm more worried about your time than mine. I'm just sitting here sipping my Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's one more that gift a couple, but I want to tell about Kyle Carpenter. <gasps> oh, yes. So Kyle Carpenter uh, was actually the youngest living of Medal of Honor recipient at the time that he was awarded it. And it's for action in Afghanistan in, in 2010. Carpenter was born in 1989. And, and pretty much raised in South Carolina, um, although born in Mississippi, raised in South Carolina. He joined the uh, Marines at age 19. So again, a very, very young. He, so in 2010, he and another Marine are manning a rooftop security post uh, during the defense of a, of a village in the Helmand province and the Taliban's attacking. And they land, the Taliban lands a grenade onto the top of this building and he falls on it, grenade detonates, um, his body absorbs the brunt of the blast, uh, and he is severely, severely wounded. But he saves the life of his uh, fellow Marine, who's also on the rooftop with him. And uh, his right arm is shattered, his jaw is shattered, he loses an eye, all of his teeth. He has to go through dozens and dozens and dozens of, of surgeries. Kyle Carpenter, again, is one of these guys who has every reason in the world to complain and doesn't. He is thankful for his life, for stitching them back together. He, he wrote a book that's called You Are Worth It. And if you're looking for a read, read that one, because it will 
really help you understand no matter how bad your day is, it's not as bad as his was. And yeah, there are going to be low periods, but you can get through it and you get through it with the help of those you allow to help you. In this instance, his mother was his probably biggest caregiver, but there are people in Walter Reed Hospital, there are people at the local PT place, there are all kinds of people who help Kyle Carpenter recover so that he can get back to life. Now it takes four or five years, but it, it is a life worth living. And his story really brings this home. Kyle, being one of the youngest Medal of Honor recipients, uh, is also uh, prolific on social media. So if you want, uh, you want to smile at somebody, check out Kyle Carpenter on Facebook. He's always doing interesting uh, things. And if you understand the backstory, you know why he's getting so much pleasure out of zip lining or going down the river in a kayak or looking at a beautiful uh, sunset. So I think there's a, a lot to be said for somebody. And there's a, there's a number of Medal Honor recipients who have done the grenade thing. Uh, Kyle's word is cuddle a grenade. Says I don't recommend you cuddle a grenade. Uh, there's Most a of number us would of not want to do that. <laughs> No, and, and that's the thing. Most of us wouldn't. He's fortunate because of the Kevlar and some of the other stuff that he had, had on, obviously, that he survived. A number of them have, you know, have not when they've fallen up on grenades to save their uh, fellow. Um, John Levitow is one of those who uh, came into a tank. He had to fall on it to save the other guys in the tank. John did make it. I, I think you can learn a lot from every one of these stories. Not only that day, that's the Medal of Honor day for what they did, but who they were before and, and what they became or didn't become after. So I'd encourage you to read the stories on that full uh, spectrum. Homeofheroes.com is where we've got many, many of them. Uh, as I said earlier, we're a veterans disability lawyer. You can find us at legalhelpforveterans.com. And if you just want good, good veteran stories after you listen to the We uh, the People podcast, you can go to veteransradio.net and listen to the podcast that I do with veterans. Well, Jim, as we're finishing up, I have two questions I want to ask you, and I don't even know if you can answer the first one. You have studied a lot of these Medal of Honor recipients. And again, I, I, I don't know if you can answer it because I, I don't have a clue. What makes them do what makes them, why did they do what they did when most of us wouldn't? Have you, can you even wrap your head around that about why they did and somebody else didn't? Yeah, I don't think there's a single answer, but I do think it, it, it's a core of that answer is an understanding of what their obligation was. They had an understanding that uh, I have an obligation to these other men that I'm with. I have an obligation to my country. Maybe I have an obligation to my family not to let them down. So I think for everybody, it's a little, some of it's just reaction. You know, Kyle Carpenter will say, well, it was just reaction. I'm not sure I'd buy that. I think that's a, that's a easy excuse. But in that fraction of a second, he could have gone the other way too. Yeah. Um, I think it, there may be a core element for each of them is that obligation. 
You know, what's really interesting is I have not spoken to any Medal of Honor recipients. I hope that I have the opportunity to do so, but I have spoken to other veterans who received traumatic injuries, and it was because of a lot of times the brave things that they did. You know, I've spoken to a couple that are double amputees. I'll be speaking to one who's a double amputee, plus he lost his vision, but the ones that I have spoken to so far, and I will bet a, a million dollars that it's the same for you, is if you were to ask them, and I, I judge as I do the interview whether it's appropriate to ask or not, if the sacrifice was worth it. And what do they all say? It's, it's a burden, but generally they would do it again because they did it meeting that obligation. Kyle Carpenter jumped on that grenade, not for himself, but for his buddy. Right. Now, he, he doesn't generally mention that guy's name intentionally. He doesn't want that guy to have the burden, the survivor guilt associated with it. A lot of these guys met that obligation and probably would say, I wouldn't have a choice. I'd, ha I'd have to do it again because I, I had that obligation. My final question for you today is, what does America mean to you? I'm glad we're starting with such a narrow issue. Um, <laughs> so, um, Just rain it all in, Jim. Just rain yeah, it all in. I, 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 so, so this is, uh, fortunately, you asked me ahead of time. I got to think about it a little bit. And I think it goes back to maybe that uh, discussion we had a little bit earlier about thank a veteran. America's really about the freedom that we all have. Now, everybody's going to define that freedom a little differently. Maybe it's the freedom to associate. Maybe it's the freedom to vote. Maybe it's the freedom of education. Maybe it's just the freedom to have opportunities and make your own choices about those opportunities. And I think that's the real key to America are those opportunities. We don't all get equal outcomes but we get opportunities that we then make our own choices and we have to live with our own choices. Sometimes they're bad choices. Uh, sometimes they're jumping on a grenade and it's a bad choice, but, but Kyle Carpenter shows you, you can get through that bad day. It may take a while, maybe painful, but you'll get there. So I think, you know, that freedom of opportunity, the freedom to make our own choices, live with the consequences is really a, a lot of what America is to me. Thank you, Jim, for sharing your American story and for sharing the American stories of some of those amazing Medal of Honor recipients. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Tina. Thanks for having me on. After spending an hour with Jim, I am even more convinced Medal of Honor recipients are superheroes. As people, we all have fears, and yet somehow these courageous men fought through the terror to protect their brothers, sacrificing their own lives if necessary. Jim has dedicated countless hours and days serving and honoring America's military members. To learn more about Jim's efforts, visit Legal Help for Veterans, veteransradio.net, and homeofheroes.com for Medal of Honor recipient stories. Thank you for listening to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. I am so grateful to spend an hour with you each week. If you are enjoying these episodes, leave a rating and a review. They are tremendously helpful. And don't forget to tell your family and friends about the powerful stories we share on We the People, Our American Story. Join me on my next episode. My guest is Thomas Capel. Tom is a veteran, a patriot, and an all-around fantastic person. 
Until next Friday, see you then.